you've landed on the Lonely Diplomat podcast. Welcome. My name's Phil McAuliffe and I'm The Lonely Diplomat. I write a blog over at thelonelydiplomat.com which aims to help reconnect mid-career diplomats to themselves and to the world around them. And I do this by looking at uh, or writing and thinking about five central themes. And they are what is a diplomat, competition and, and the very competitive nature of diplomacy, resilience, loneliness, and connection. And by connection, I mean connection to self, connection to those around you, and connection to the community. In this po uh, podcast episode, we'll be talking around the concept of resilience. Now, resilience in diplomacy has been, I guess, maladapted from its original form of psychological resilience. Now, resilience is a concept that I've um, looked at twice in two separate blog posts, most recently in The Lonely Diplomat on Resilience Part 2. That post looked at the resilience that diplomats need, the psychological resilience. Now, as I've said, that has been somewhat maladapted, and sometimes it feels that the term resilience is kind of played fast and loose, used for slang within, um, within our offices and workplaces, to talk about the need or indeed the desire that we feel within ourselves and the expectations that are placed on us, that we feel that resilient means that we simply must absorb every single stressor that comes our way uh, because of our work. I've investigated how dangerous this actually is for us because a key part of psychological resilience is the need to spring back to form. Now, if our jobs, if our roles, or indeed the way that we drive ourselves intrinsically has us constantly stressing, constantly flexing, it means that we don't actually return to form and we are at danger, I contend, of breaking. This is a concept that may have many of you listeners nodding and, and thinking about how resilience is used in your workplace. Now, sometimes resilience might be a, a talk or a training program that's used in our um, in, in our pre-departure training packages. Or in my case, it might be a seemingly endless questionnaire, which I had to answer a couple of times prior to each posting, um, where my answers would be reviewed by a psychologist. I would get a phone call. And that psychologist, in kind of an imperial Roman style, would say, thumbs up, yes, good for posting, uh, or thumbs down, no, not good for posting, not psychologically resilient enough. Now, because that concept of resilience has such power over us, and because it's been maladapted, we can be at risk of not seeking help. 
that we need in order to help us return to form out of fear that we will not be found resilient enough for postings or promotions in the future. So very dangerously, we just continue to absorb and absorb and absorb. And it's this that we're going to be talking about today. We live and work oftentimes, indeed all times, in stressful places. Wherever you are, there are stresses in doing your job and in living where you're living because you're living away from something that is comfortable, that is known. Some places, however, take stresses to the extreme. And these are places, which can be anywhere in the world at any given time, where there are major events, that the, the, those kind of events that make the news. So this occurred to me the other day, and um, I was talking with a reader, and we were talking about, and they told me about the concept of big and little resilience. Now, I think it may have been that evening or, or a few evenings after I was watching the news here in New Zealand. And at least the first 20 minutes of the hour-long news program covered issues of the day that would have necessitated a response by a diplomat or a group of diplomats somewhere in the world. So it's the natural disasters, it's the major uh, accidents, it's the political crises um, which, uh, you know, diplomats uh, negotiate on behalf of governments and it's a political crisis that happens you know in the media and in in you know various parliaments around the world and it's up to diplomats in in um, in in other places to negotiate um, that it's the terror attacks it's the war it's the um, y- 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 those major events you know what I mean then Because of the concept of little resilience, I thought, ah, what's going on? How how does those little stresses that we encounter almost daily, almost constantly in our working life and indeed as diplomats in our home life, that how how does that affect us? So from that, I did some thinking and came up uh, and, and produced this blog post, The Lonely Diplomat, on, re- uh, on Resilience Part 2. Part of that, I spoke with the amazing Alison Earle, who I'm going to be interviewing just a few moments on this episode. Now, Alison is an author and has recently um, published the book Tripowerment, The Why, The Will, and The Way of Breakthrough Change. It's a fantastic book, um, and we're going to be revisiting many of the themes that uh, that she raises in this book in subsequent blog posts and podcast episodes. But critically for this episode, Alison is a positive psychology practitioner. I'll leave it to her to explain it to you, but she specializes in stress and what stress does to us physically, mentally, and emotionally, and how we can leverage stress for our 
advantage, as kind of perverse as it seems. I'm going to leave it to this really interesting interview that you will be hearing very shortly to, to go into more details. But think about it. If you are a person who has gotten stressed, is stressed, or feel that you might might be stressed into the future, this next interview is compulsory listening. Let's have a listen. Alison Earle, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, good to be here, Phil. Um, in the intro, I, I gave um, the listener a bit of a, an overview of how, uh, uh, oh, sorry, the work that you're doing and, and the book that you've written, Tripowerment, The Why, The Will and The Way of Breakthrough Change, which, as I just said to you before, I, I finished reading this this past weekend. It's a fantastic book, but we're going to um, talk with you in, in a few episodes time um, specifically around that book. But I'm keen to find out some more about you from about what you're doing for your work um, particularly around being a positive psychology practitioner yeah sure and I'm so thrilled to hear you enjoyed the book (laughs) so look forward to talking more about that yeah um yeah so so essentially I'll tell I'll sort of do a long story very short but I I did marketing and international business at university uh, and marketing, obviously, is such a broad field. So mm. when I went in search of my first job, I was completely open as to what I did. Uh, the only thing that I was absolutely sure of was I did not want to do market research. Okay. So, <laughs> so what would you guess my first job was? <laughs> I'm going to, yes, no points yeah. for guessing, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I became a market researcher and um, and it, it turned out to be the best possible thing. And it turns out human behavior is fascinating and never makes sense and is incredibly complicated. And I was absolutely hooked, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, humans must be the only species on earth that actively self-sabotage their own progress, which is just fascinating, right? Yeah. Uh, we get in our own way all the time. And so I, I became hooked. I became totally obsessed with why do people do what they do? Why don't they do other things? And how do we motivate positive behavior change? So I worked for a long time um, in, across all sorts of industries. Um, my work expanded into innovation and brand strategy uh, and all in this space of really understanding humans and how can we redesign things to better uh, drive positive behavior. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's how it all started. And, and I was very fortunate um, in my career. I was, I've, I've worked and lived in Sydney, London and New York and I helped build new businesses from the ground up in those spaces uh, and worked and, and, you know, because of the research nature of the work I did, have worked with people in countries, in, in companies, sorry, in over 20 countries around the world. So I've had a lot of exposure to different, cultures and different sorts of people and it's just been really fascinating and through that time I've been a part of cultures that have really thrived with change and stress and uncertainty and the reality is if you're building a new business from the ground up we're unknown so the, the thing with 
we're working in these environments, building new businesses from the ground up. It's highly stressful, right? You're mm. dealing with uncertainty. You're trying to get new clients to the, no brand name that's uh, that they know of or care about at this stage, and and it's a real grind. And so I've been part of environments that have really thrived with that sort of stress and change and uncertainty, mm-hmm. and then also been in experiences where it's completely unravelled. And it's all fallen down around us and, and whatever else. So I became really fascinated by what makes us thrive in these high-pressure, intense times versus what makes us fall apart. Okay. Um, so that led me on to study positive psychology uh, and really understand more about, like, what makes people thrive um, and I've also been very fortunate for the last six years I've led a collaboration with the Harvard School of Public Health um, in relation to solving the most complex challenges in behaviour change. So it's been a really great journey. So all of that has really come together to inform a lot of the work I do these days, which is working with people and companies to unlock potential um, and, and specifically of how do we thrive with change and stress and not just survive it this i i am kind of overwhelmed with the number of questions that i want to ask (laughs) um so i I guess you know starting from the beginning and, and and putting it into context for the listener um diplomacy uh there's there's many um similarities with what you're saying in terms of the 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 like the thriving not just surviving with stress yes Um, one of the 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 key um sort of uh factors in working as a diplomat is that we respond to crises as they happen and crises you know can be you know the the moderate to extreme you know or, or in terms of scale Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of that, that sort of startup nature, you know, it's government has already been established and we're working within quite a, at times, a bulky bureaucracy. Um, and I think we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit uh, later in terms of, you know, big and little resilience in terms of working within a bureaucracy. But um, in many instances the demands on our time, the things that occupy our days aren't necessarily self-driven. They're, mm-hmm. they're driven by, you know, events that happen globally, locally where people are posted, could be something happening within our, our capital, um, back home, you know, politically, economically or socially that, you know, kind of... Um, uh, uh, you know, dictates your day um, and week or month or indeed the whole term of your posting. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the what I'm really keen to, to, to focus on is that sort of particularly that thriving with stress because yes. um, I think it was uh, uh, Dr. Maya Angelou said that if you can't, uh, if you don't like your circumstances, change them. But if you can't change your circumstances, change yourself. Um, I think mm-hmm. I may have just messed up that um, uh, <laughs> that, that quote, but um, I, I really like it. So, you know, being 
a, a small cog in a very big machine can have us feeling quite helpless um, mm-hmm. and, and, dare I say, a victim of circumstance that this is happening to us. So I'm really keen to, to hear some more from you about sort of thriving with, with stress and, and, you know, I mean, I think pens are poised uh, all over, you know, who, with, with people listening, um, how to, to make stress something to, that's a friend rather than, than, than to fear it. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's become a big part of the work I do. So it, it was interesting when I first went down this path, I was very focused on how do we grow into our, you know, our best selves, basically. Yeah. How, do we, how do we unlock that, that full potential and really show up as our best, most efficacious, um, effervescent <laughs> version yeah. of ourselves, right? Yeah, we always on, right? Always on and just really knowing our purpose and all of that sort of stuff. And what I found is when I started going and talking with big companies um, is that the level of stress that people experience day to day and hats off to diplomats. So I really do think, wow, that is really important, high stress, very diverse sort of situations that diplomats will find themselves in. Um, And honestly, it can put a lot of us regular people's problems into perspective when we look at it like that right we we probably need to look at the stuff that diplomats are doing and go wow we got it pretty easy actually it's a we you know our problems aren't that bad but in reality they are because they're our reality right so that's exactly right yeah yeah, so when we're in it, it it can be really bad and and i found that it's a bit like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You can't get to this sort of self-actualizing stage if you're actually your basic level needs of feeling safety and security in your role and with your peers and all of those sorts of things, the level of belonging aren't actually being fulfilled. So um, really getting to the point where we could help people move out of that sort of victim mindset and also situation where they don't feel in control of what's happening to them is really part of the, is the first step because you can't actually get to the point where you're your best efficacious self while ever you are feeling at the mercy of things outside of yourself, right? So, mm. so mm. basically... I like to think of it as a spectrum, and at the very bo- think of it very bottom is surviving, and right at the top is thriving. But there's a lot of levels in between. So the surviving level is easy to pick, and actually, uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that go even lower than that. There's a lot of people that don't survive it in the sense that they have burnout, they really break down. A lot of people leave their careers or or or, or um, jobs or whatever it is well before um, they should because they simply can't take it anymore. So there is a level down there that mm. are just really, mm. really struggling. Um, but surviving is that typically signaled by sheer exhaustion, right? You just feel exhausted all of the time. Right. You feel like you're unable to, you're not in control of everything that's happening. Um, so that's, that's sort of that bottom level. A level up is coping and and sometimes we think we're doing quite well if we're coping because we're, ma- we're, we're getting through yeah um but we're really probably at that stage self-medicating with either alcohol or other substances <laughs> to blow off steam so you hear people say blow off steam 
I need to wind down. Like we need to actually escape from the stress in the day-to-day and then we go back into it once we've managed to uh, fill up our bucket a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that's not a good place to be either because it's it only generates resentment. The more I'm in this situation where I feel like I have to get away, the only way I can deal with it is to get away from it and, and sort of blow off steam and then come back. That generates resentment and it doesn't really set us up to be our best on our best form, right? This is gold, Alison. This is gold <laughs> because this is this is something um, that uh, that I think you and I have spoken about previously. But um, you know, in in previous blog posts, in in many of my previous blog posts, I talk about numbing, um, and you know, right. from the, the the range of you know, numbing self-medication almost literally through drug and alcohol um, use, but also through shopping or... Yes, um, it's, you know, it's escapism. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So this, this, I think, um, you, you're, you're right, and I, I, I'm, I'm loath to cut you off now, but I'm, I'm, I'm simply saying, oh, my God, this, this coping, this is so common. So it's common. It's so common. It's so common. And there are more levels. Like, it doesn't stop at just coping and whatever else. Like, it, even an upper level from that, and this is when people think they're doing really well, is when they're managing. Okay. Right? And managing is all about I'm juggling the ups and downs of my work demands, uh, you know, but it usually comes at a personal cost too. So, you may not be, like, actually self-medicating and, and whatever else, but you're... Um, or, or, or mindlessly watching that numbing, mindlessly watching TV into the you know early hours of the morning or mm-hmm. whatever it is, mm-hmm. the numbing behaviours. But managing usually comes at a personal cost too. So if you're really under the pump and, and work demands are taking over, what's the first thing that you get rid of? Yeah. Right? It's sleep, sleep, it's exercise, it's good nutrition, it's time with your friends or your family, whatever it is that's important to you. All of the things that are truly nourishing to to yourself and you can do that for short periods of time but when this becomes a norm mm. uh it's it's really not a good place to be you're in a constant state of being stretched and it's always the things that matter to you that get sacrificed first right mm. Mm. so that's it and and the problem i think in our culture in our society is that we're being kind of conditioned to think that managing is actually a really good place. <laughs> if you've gotten to that level, you're doing really well. <laughs> you're on the road which to enlightenment. Really, yes, which is really uninspiring to yeah. me. And I just think I think it's not good enough. You know, we need to do more for ourselves. We need to we need to expect more from ourselves and from other people. And and we can't actually deliver uh, at our best possible, in our best possible way, if we're simply managing. Mm. If you're just saying that now, how are you? I'm managing. Like, how does that feel? It feels <laughs> very flat. Right? I'm mediocre, thank you, yeah. I'm very mediocre, thank you. Yeah. Um, and, and it's just, it's not good enough. And unfortunately, we've gotten to the point where we think that managing is is good enough, okay? We're juggling, we're getting through. But there's this really magical turning point that happens when we can go from just managing up to leveraging and that's when we say look there's all of this energy that's being generated by whatever it is whether it's the stress of a deadline uh, or something really important happening and we need to pull together and get that done 
but we start to recognize that we can use all of that energy, we can use the pressure mm. Mm. to our advantage, right? And we can, instead of having it as something that's actually dragging us down, we, we use it as a driver of performance, a driver of connection and camaraderie and growth, uh, right? Yes. Yeah, and, and also we can talk more about this, but if we're successful in creating that mindset shift and actually relating to stress and pressure in a way that's there to work for us and not against us, then we, uh, we also can generate a healthier physiological response in the body. And to me, that is hugely exciting because just by thinking differently about it and creating a new relationship with how stress works in my mind, I can literally change the amount of cortisol, the amount of other stress hormones that are being released in my body that make it from harmful to something that's actually helpful and good for me, which to me is amazing. Yeah. And then and then a level up is when we get to thriving and that's where we can start talking more the self-actualization and connecting connecting our stress to meaning and purpose and living a fulfilled life and, and all of that cool, fun stuff that we aspire to. This, oh, Alison, I, I do recall when, when we met um, a few weeks ago, uh, we were talking about this and I think I said almost verbatim, where were you two years ago? Um, <laughs> so when, when, you know, really did feel that um, quite intense stress that comes yeah. from having so many bosses um you know uh, and and different demands on your time from lots of different areas and and indeed sometimes from different governments um and you know the 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 one point of um of convergence is in the individual um, mm -hmm. And and leaving it to the to the uh, to the individual to to to, to manage um, uh, in sen in the sense of you know well you know all this work has to get done so instead of having seven hours sleep I'll have five and I'll be fine yeah you know, I'll just have have a coffee you know one more coffee uh, or two more coffees in the day or you know an energy drink or whatever it is, but, you know, I won't go for a run. I won't do, you know, um, the things that you say nourish me. I mm -hmm. am absolutely certain that there are listeners all around the world right now just going, uh-huh, yep, yep. Oh, wow. Like, you know, I'm, I'm you know, barely at coping. You know, I, a good day, as you've said, you know, is when I get to managing Certainly, mm -hmm. certainly, I think many diplomats can um, relate to that leveraging um, uh, stage yes. when you say, you know, it is a powerful way of connection. Um, and it, it, it is that, that sort of sense of, of connection and camaraderie that, that really can be a highlight of the posting um, where yeah. you, you sort of develop these, you know, intense um, situational-based connections with people that can sustain through life. Um, or, you know, you've shared, you know, a, 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 a really difficult moment with someone uh, and that bond is there with you for life. Yeah. 
this, I, I, I'm just nodding and nodding and nodding going, oh my God, but where were you two years ago? Um, <laughs> but one of the questions, like a question that I want to ask um, now is what do you say to the listener? And, and I'm sure that there are some who can, you know, are listening to your words going, yep, Alison, that's fantastic. That's great theory. But all of this is just, you know, beyond coping. So the managing, the leveraging, the thriving, um, that is just a nice to have. I'm far too busy to, <laughs> um, to, to stick my head up anymore uh, and, and, you know, at least get to managing. Managing is a good, would be a great win for me, but I'm just far too busy. Yeah. What, what, what advice would you have for them? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think, unfortunately, busyness has become the new currency of value. And, and, and for, for some people, obviously, everyone's busy these days, right? So I think that's a real trap to fall into. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not true. It doesn't mean you don't have a lot on. But it's a real trap to use that as an excuse or a reason uh, not to do things that actually matter. So for me, it all comes down to wanting more for yourself and wanting more for, for each other. And that's why I would say... We need, to, we need to do more for ourselves. And there is research that shows actually learning something new, engaging in something new, it's totally counterintuitive, right? Mm. Engaging in something new, learning something new is more of a stress buffer than relaxation. Oh. Okay. There's also research that shows uh, if, you are, if you're time poor, and you are given an option to use some time that you have, your time given back. So say you're given back an extra half an hour and you're able to use that to help a colleague or help someone else in need or take it back for yourself. The, the, the physiological benefits, the psychological benefits are significantly greater if you use that time to help someone else. So wow. repeated, repeatedly we're shown whether your time, no matter how time crunched you are, there is actually a benefit for greater engagement, not less engagement. Okay, and so I think that's the thing that we've got to remember, but it's it's engaging in the ways that energize you. Mm. Um, so I think whether that's learning something new, learning something new, both of these things, by the way, help build self-efficacy mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, if you, the more powerful you feel in yourself, uh, the more you're going to be able to take on any of these sorts of things that are being thrown at you. So whether it's learning something new or helping someone else, it helps you build self-efficacy. So the benefits to you are, are significantly more than just taking time out to relax. So I think if people are in a place where they're feeling like they're just too busy to do anything, we need to challenge ourselves uh, to 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 about that limiting belief system right right because at the end of the day that's a story that we're engaging with mm -hmm. and we're telling ourselves yep. and we're letting it get in the way of wanting more for ourselves and creating more for ourselves so that would be the first thing that i would i would talk about with someone who is really focused on how busy they are because 
at the end of the day, everyone's busy, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's busy. Right. And it's your choice whether you want to stay in this place or if you want to sort of start changing the situation for yourself. Right. Because um, no one can do it for you. You know, we, we do need to, I guess, um, resist that temptation within ourselves to close the door, to take the phone off the hook, um, uh, which kind of is showing my age with, with that kind of mental image there, but uh, yeah. and, and, and turn email off and just, you know, sit there with a pile of paperwork in front of us and just churn through it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so we, we could be missing a, a very valuable opportunity, I guess, um, to, for, for, for building that connection. Absolutely. And and I do think it's interesting. I just read an article, which I completely disagreed with the majority of it, but it's interesting, um, you know, how complaining actually helps us build social bonds and at work. And it was fascinating because the author of the article had basically taken the research that shows how this complaining increases social bond and basically said, you know what? It's, it actually helps us form stronger relationships at work. and But really what the research is showing is that we need and crave camaraderie. Yes. And we, sh- and we need to share in our experiences of stress. We can't live in isolation because the more we feel like this is just happening to me or I am alone in my suffering, that is the sure path to being trapped in your situation, right? Mm. Whereas when we can recognize that this is actually part of the human experience, and I know diplomats are faced with challenges that, you know, the the mere mortals among us would just go, wow, that's like pretty intense, and it is, right? Mm. Um, but we, but at the same time, if we relate to a lot of these things more as just part of our human experience, and there are people in the world at various different places who actually are experiencing exactly what you're experiencing right now, Mm -hmm. it can actually reduce our suffering significantly and it can make us start to open up to the connection with our, the people that we work with, but also just human connection and accepting help and whatever else. And that can totally transform our experience because humans, humans are social creatures, right? And at the end of the day, the fight and flight response uh, which we often, you know, I'm sure diplomats have a, a, a lot of experience with this in crisis situations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, social connection is just as much of a survival instinct as fight or flight. And we need to create opportunities for that to happen with our peers as opposed to working against each other or feeling like my busy is worse than your busy. And yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Fight the, fight the urge to, to compete. Yes. Um, and, and which is a trap, which is a trap um, that many diplomats um, fall into um, because, because the, the environment certainly in, in, within many governments, as government organisations and employees of a government organisation, you know, we are at the whim of government funding. Um, and, you know, the, the, the money that is collected just goes, you know, uh, centrally uh, into government coffers, which is great, but it, it, it oftentimes it doesn't come back. So, you know, we, we, we kind of run on the scent of an oily rag. And it can, at times, the, 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 com- uh, the, the competitive nature in our offices can kind of make hunger games 
uh, the mm. Hunger Games look like a Sunday picnic. Um, <laughs> and and you know it's, it, it's a terrifying it's, thought. It, well, it, it is, and instead, you know, the, the the weapons aren't you know some you know crossbow or or whatever it is that Katniss Everdeen has, but um, it is uh, you know it's 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 a well-timed email to the right person copying in the right person kind of thing it's it's a lot more subtle and 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 can be a lot more psychological yes um and you know because there's so much we feel so much riding on us handling everything near to perfect all the time near to perfectly all the time um so and I know that we're not alone and that, that whole phrase and, and, and point that you just made there, Alison, in terms of, you know, when we realise that someone somewhere in the world has gone through or is going through maybe not exactly the same but similar and we are open to talking about that, great things can happen. That support, that, that, that important camaraderie can can manifest um so because i know that we're not alone we diplomats are not alone in working in an environment which is you know hunger games competitive absolutely absolutely as you know i i do i work with all sorts of companies and some of the professionals i've been working with more recently is the legal professionals and i think What's fascinating and, and what drew me into wanting to work in with legal professionals was uh, the complexity of why they're more stressed than everyone else. And I'm not saying they're more stressed than diplomats, but <laughs> they're, they're really stress high stress, stress. As, a, as an industry. And they um, experience very high levels of burnout, really high levels of problem drinking, you know, all of those things that around those coping behaviours. And I think what's really interesting is you look at the compounding factors that drive that sort of thing. So firstly, you mentioned something really interesting. There's a personality type and the personality type that is actually drawn to work in these sorts of uh, industries. So lawyers tend to over-index on the perfectionist type of personality mm-hmm. right they right. they're high achievers and i imagine diplomats have got a similar parallel there right yeah absolutely perfectionists highly detailed they're not good at not being in control of situations <laughs> and and the reality is is that there are many things that you cannot control there are many factors that are outside of what you can actually influence right. so over and over, we have to learn what should we really put our energy and focus into, when to let go of certain things and realize we can't control everything. And then there are truly systemic issues. You know, the billable hour probably is one of the the biggest systemic issues within the legal profession where billable hours has become the currency of value, right? right? It's not about value. It's not about did you genuinely add value in those hours that you worked on that. It's about how many did you bill, yeah. right? And, and it's a hugely stressful thing for people that were probably drawn to the profession in the first place because they actually wanted to help and make a difference. So there's this major disconnect when all of a sudden you get caught up in these very bureaucratic, like the, the very like 
systemic issues that actually don't matter, but that for some reason they've become a way that we do things. They actually decrease the level of meaning in the work that you're doing and, and make you lose sight of what really matters. And then all of a sudden you just feel like you're drowning in it and yes. there's no purpose and I don't know why any of this matters anymore. And that's when burnout happens. That's when withdrawal happens. That's when divide happens and, and conflict. So that's a really interesting parallel, I think, because if not just the systemic issues, that the personality factors um, that drove people to be a part of it in the first place. This, oh, I, I, I just have in, in my mind, you know, the almost every workplace that I've ever worked in. Um, and <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, while we don't in, in diplomacy and, and, you know, within, within the public service, we don't have billable hours, but, you know, there is the need to report on what you're doing. Um, yes. And, you know, something's happening in the country uh, where you're posted or country that you're responsible for, or for which you're responsible, and you need to report it. Um, and you can be judged uh, on your performance um, by how many reports uh, you have sent, which kind of is a really... Uh, backwards way of looking at it because you know it's a lot easier though to measure the volume of reports not necessarily the effectiveness of them that's um, right you know that's how right. many people read them you know was it you know succinct was it um uh uh you know useful did it did it help the narrative at home um you know did it make the situation in your country clearer for readers at home um mm -hmm. you know very few um uh reports like that actually get a comment so you just feel like you're feeding the beast and indeed that's that's sometimes said you've just got to feed the beast um mm. because you know it's all about getting your name at the bottom of one of these reports um and feeding the beast staying back till late in the evening feeding the beast knowing 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 that maybe one person will read it right <laughs> and yeah. and and so while we don't have billable hours you know the, the the concept you know we can extrapolate that kind of perverse performance driver where uh, which does actually, and this is a key factor in one of my key, uh, one of my central themes, which is connection, uh, and specifically around connection to self, where for mid-career diplomats, we have spent 10, 15, maybe 20 years slowly, slowly, report by report, distancing ourselves from the young idealistic person who walked into our employing agency on the first day with a head full of ideas and and you know wishes to make a positive contribution to the world when then suddenly you're being judged not on you know making a positive contribution to the world but on you know how you construct a sentence and mm. you know whether the beast has been fed yeah yeah, yeah. to me it's just the it's it's such a a shame like it's such a waste to have 
that level of uh, enthusiasm and passion and hope and and whatever else these people these intelligent people showing up genuinely hungry to make a difference and to squash that out of them uh, is just such a a waste and a, a crime. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what way you look at it. Yeah. And, um, it, it, and I think we've lost sight of that in lots of these fields. Mm, a lot of the mm. a lot of the professions come down to things we can measure um, that aren't necessarily a good measure of value or mm. a good measure of purpose. And if we actually imagine if the lawyers, instead of, uh, you know, having to focus on the billable hours and that being the main measure of currency in, in their law firms, imagine if it was more around a, a, val- a currency of difference making or a, a value to your client, um, then it's more around how creatively you solved a problem, how you were mm. able to apply yourself in a meaningful way and create a result that was truly meaningful uh, and not not just how many hours that took you. And it was interesting because I, I had a, I'm not going to say names of the company because I don't want to badmouth anyone, but I had a very similar experience with my, with an accounting firm <laughs> recently that also do the billable hours, right? Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because they went down this rabbit hole of doing all of the, or, or suggesting that they needed to do all of this work that didn't need to be done really. And I just asked them one question. I said to them, well, can you tell me, because the option is you just click a button and don't do it, is the other option, right? Mm-hmm. But can you tell me, what is the value to me if you do that? And they were stumped. <laughs> it was one of these things. They were absolutely stumped. And I just said to them, guys, we've really lost sight of what your role is. You know, at right. the end of the day, if, your ro- if you don't see your role to add value to me as a client, we've really lost the plot. Yeah. You know, and that, and I think that's what it all comes down to. How are we adding value? And and I think people, I felt sorry for them too because guess what? They felt completely shitty about what they were doing. Right. So that to me is just an example of a lose-lose. We've created systems that become a lose-lose. Mm-hmm. They're people that were actually driven to do a good job and help and make a difference end up working in a currency that actually isn't adding value and isn't serving the people they originally set out to help, that's a total lose-lose. We're both unhappy, right? So I think we need to reframe that and say, well, how can we create more win-wins? And each of us as individuals need to keep asking ourselves that question, where's the win-win? How do I make this a win for me and a win for them? And if we approach our work, approach all of our challenges through that win-win kind of mentality, then we get to very different places. Oh, Alison, I'm sure there are dozens and dozens of listeners right now who are doing exactly the same as what I'm doing uh, when I hear you talking about this. And and, and that's sort of sitting back and, and reflecting on how we can implement this in our in our day-to-day lives at work um and and while the 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 machine that we work within can seem too big to change we can you know change and and reflect on our interactions with those uh that you know are in our office or with whom we work closely um Mm -hmm. and and that kind of small level 
change where we can look to see you know the win-win um you know using using stephen covey there um where we can find that uh that that value that i think is a really key point for many diplomats right now um where there is thought there's discussion of how do we provide for those who need our information in a way that they get it um and i think that's a real um that's that's a like a fundamental critical issue for diplomacy right now the other the other topic while i've got you is just talking about and this is something that we spoke about uh, a few weeks ago big and little resilience um in terms of our ability to cope with the things that stress us that try us and we talked a fair bit about that, that the concept of, of big and little resilience, which a reader uh, let me know about uh, and we talked about. Um, and I love the concept. I really love it. But we talked about how, and, and indeed a blog post which you, you contributed to, which is The Lonely Diplomat on Resilience, part two, talks about um, how we are prepared mentally, emotionally, uh, and indeed physically for those major events that can test our big resilience. Um, so whether or not they're the, the natural disasters, the, um, the civil uh, strife in, in the country in which we're posted, the economic crisis, the, you know, the, the, the war, the you know, major accident, the, the, the big things that make the news. Um, while they, they can be horrific, we have support structures in place um, that can help us deal with it. And indeed, a key point that I made in my blog post was talking about how we are more willing to engage in the support services available to us to cope with these big events. Um, but then we talked about little resilience um, and just the, the, the nature of how the work does uh, is, is performed can really test our little resilience. And in many times, it's the little resilience events or the, the events that test our little resilience that can have us coming undone, that can make us want to stand up, throw the table over and go and drop the mic and, and you know, leave in an epic you know, bugger you all kind of uh, uh, sentiment and, you know, I'm out, you know, I'm, I'm done. Um, and you had some really good thoughts um, that you contributed in, in, in the blog post about little resilience. Do you remember what they were? Well, yeah, as you're talking, I, I think um, the thing that strikes me most about big and little resilience, which I love the distinction between the two, is that little resilience lacks purpose. So when we think about why we have to deal with all of these things and why it matters in the big scheme of things, that's when we come up short and we go, you know what, this is just stupid. This is, there's just no good reason why I should have to fight someone over the number of staplers that I'm allowed to order or the number of staples that we have available or 
printing, on colour versus black and white, all these things <laughs> that just feel like, wait, this doesn't matter. And I'm being forced to jump through hoops over stuff that doesn't matter when really important things are happening in the world, right? Yeah. And I think I think that's the core of the issue with little resilience is because it lacks meaning. We are not able to endure it in the same way. It's also constant. Yes. Right? It's constant. So the big events, the natural disaster, the terrorist attack, the whatever it is, the, 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 fall, the fall of a political system, whatever those things are, they are really emergency. Our bodies are designed to gear up and act within those sorts of situations. And it's harder for our body to distinguish between just that daily grind yep. and what is truly an emergency. And we don't need an emergency response in our body when we're frustrated about the number of staples we're allowed to use. Right. But, at this, but, but it doesn't mean it doesn't grate on us. Yeah. But it's constant. It lacks purpose. And because of that, it's often those tiny little things that are the straw that breaks the camel's back. Yes. Most people can endure the, the, uh, the big thing because it is wrapped in meaning and they know there is an end in sight. There is light at the end of the tunnel. There is something they're working toward. But when you feel like there's not, then all of a sudden it gets too hard uh, and we start to withdraw, we start to think, why bother? And, and that, I think, is the, is the risk of little resilience. And I think when we were speaking, I was fascinated with di diplomats because you're so trained to deal with the crisis that you can really underestimate the impact that those day-to-day -day grind things actually have on your overall resilience. Right. Right. Absolutely. And it's it, it, such is, and I alluded to it a little earlier, where we've got that limited funding um, and, and, you know, for very good reason. Like, you know, we don't want to be, you know, working in, in you know, lavish, um, lavish offices. Um, but, you know, it, it does get to the point, sadly, that, you know, where you have to tally up, you know, is this something, you know, can, can, can we afford to um, to do this, uh, or you know, this is how something is done in this country, but in my country, that's considered lavish and extreme. So you know, how do we, you know, um, do something that stays true to you know our um, societal expectations about how government spends its money versus you know the uh, expectations of our host country, who you know. It's, you know, would expect an ambassador, for, exam uh, for example, to rock up uh, to a major event um, in a, in a, you know, an official car with the flag flying rather than mm -hmm. an Uber uh, or right. a taxi kind of thing, which, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the taxpayer back home might go, well, you know, it was only around the block. Why couldn't you walk? Um, right. So, right. Um, and, and it is, it is that kind of um, uh, sort of constant, as you say, nature of the things that test our little resilience that, that come to us. And some of the things that have been explained to me have been, you know, working in a small post where you have the same maybe two other people, uh, two other diplomats from your country, and you're in there with them day in, day out, sometimes even living in the same apartment complex or in the same compound, um, 
day in, day out for the term of your posting. Mm. Uh, and we know this. We know this in theory. And this is one of the points that I made in, um, in, in that blog post was we know all of this in theory before we go in. However, when it does happen, we can fall victim to the shoulds. You know, yes. I knew this, but I, sh- I should be able to handle it better. I won't seek any help because I, you know, I should be able to handle it. Or, and this goes back a couple of points in our discussion, Alison, which is, you know, I will talk about that person to other people and build a coalition, build alliances uh, and, you know, gossip and snark and engage in all sorts of teenage high school behavior because, you know, I need to vent, but I should be feeling... I should know, I should be able to cope with this better. Mm. Um, and that is toxic. It can make a small workplace an extremely poor environment to work in for a number of years. Um, and it's incredibly, incredibly, I contend, damaging to the mm. individuals working there. But... We're reluctant. We can be reluctant to say, you know what? No, I don't like that person. Um, and because they're my boss, you know, they're the, it's, it's the ambassador and I need to, re- I rely on his or her good opinion of me to then get a promotion. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I have to put up with them for two, three years um, and I can't do anything, but this is a known, I can't say anything because it will reflect badly on me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, I think it's really interesting because there's a, there's a few things I might say about, about that. Um, first is that it, when we're in these sorts of situations and it can feel very unique, Mm. Uh, to I'm sure a diplomat would feel very like, isolated in their experience uh, when that's happening. And firstly, diplomats all around the world are experiencing that. Yeah. But, but secondly, people all around the world are experiencing their own version mm-hmm. of whatever this is. Mm-hmm. There's never been more uncertainty in someone's career than there is right now, no matter what field you look at. Uh, you know, companies are constantly restructuring. People are losing their jobs. They're having to upskill. Their roles are being completely wiped out. You know, I spoke with one of the major tech companies just recently um, who have totally changed the way that people travel, right? They've totally changed the way that people get around. Um, 25% of their marketing jobs have been replaced by AI in the last 12 months. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 25%. That's a quarter <laughs> of the whole marketing <laughs> jobs were replaced by AI. So those people are in those roles. Guess what? They have to find some other new role that they've got to get skilled on, which, by the way, may get replaced by AI down the track yeah. too. Yeah. So I think people all around the world are experiencing situations that feel out of their control um, and, and that they they need to we all need to tap into the fact that we're all going we're all going through our own version of this whatever that looks like so that comes back to the common humanity 
thing that I talked about earlier, that people all around the world, someone is going through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people are going through it in all sorts of different ways. So once we recognize that, then we stop feeling so sorry for ourselves and we start feeling compassion for other people and compassion for ourselves, which is super important, right? right. So it's not about denying the fact that this is challenging for you. You want to have self-compassion, but also recognize that a lot of people go through these sorts of things it's actually part of the human experience um, to go through these sorts of challenges. And then the other thing I would I, I really wanted to comment on was whenever we start to use language like I'm stuck or I feel weighed down or I feel suffocated or whatever, those sorts of heavy language, that is when it's really clear that there's a victim mindset going on. And we need to recognize that in ourselves because there's nothing more disempowering than feeling like you can't influence a situation, right? So just recognizing that's what's going on and take responsibility for it. So yes, you may have a boss that's responsible, their review of you is responsible for your progress, Mm -hmm. but there are plenty of different ways that you can approach your relationship with them or the sort of work that you're doing. And it may be that, you know, you're in a situation where things are done completely backwards and none of it makes sense and you've got to go, all right, I've got to sit back. I've got to refocus on why this matters to me. Why does it matter to make this situation work? Oh, it matters because I actually care about diplomacy or I care about whatever it is and the difference I'm trying to make. And you know what? This is one of those things that I do to make that happen. So reconnecting the things that feel pointless and mundane with the bigger purpose that drives you is another really important step that we all need to do and step back and go, okay, let me recenter myself and and how do I take this forward? Because guess what? At the end of the day, this is part of what it takes, part of what it takes to be in this place and to make this difference. And it may make me want to pull my fingernails out one by one but at the same time it is what's required and it's what it's what gives me the privilege to get to do the work I get to do and and then all of a sudden that other it just feels like that it's just something little I need to do I need to get past because we've re-anchored it in something we care about another another thing that struck me when you're talking that I related to from an earlier part in my experience, I realized uh, in my career, sorry, I was uh, very, I'm a pleaser by nature. I want everyone to be happy, right? Right. And when I was doing my work and delivering a strategy or a presentation or whatever else, I really didn't realize just how much it mattered to me that the client uh, was thrilled. They were like, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Blah, blah, blah. You've changed our world, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay. And, and I, I, all of a sudden, because I always had these glowing reviews. And then one day I'm working with a client and they barely said thank you. They're like, oh, can you send us the presentation? And I, I was like, oh, my God, are they not happy? No, that's just how they are, actually. Right. But it was so fascinating because it really got me down. And every time I delivered a presentation to them, I would go extra mile i'm thinking i'm gonna get them to stand up at the end of the presentation and say oh my god this has changed my world and i I put everything into it right and i and it was good the present they were getting the best stuff i've ever done right 
<laughs> anyway, no, they didn't. Never, never did they get up and th- say to me, gosh, this was good thinking, Alison, never. And what I came to realise over time, that none of them actually like their jobs. <laughs> they are actually, they're just doing their jobs. They don't care. They were literally pushing the paper around, doing what they had to do, and they all they cared about was getting home at the end of the day, and they didn't care. So I was trying to pin my my happiness and my sense of satisfaction was being linked to something that was never going to reward me in the way that I wanted to be rewarded. So I had to choose another way to gain value from that client. So eventually what I said is, you know what, every time I do a job for this client, I'm going to try something new. And the sole purpose of that is learning. I'm going to get to learn a new psychological theory or I'm going to get to learn a new methodology or whatever because guess what? This client doesn't actually care. So I can use them as my guinea pig and (laughs) and have fun. And I did and I did all these amazing things that that benefited me and I got exactly the same response from them at the end of the day. Yeah, can you send us the presentation? So it was fascinating but all of a sudden I got something out of it and I think we all need to take responsibility you can't pin your own happiness on right. someone else's reaction and someone else's uh, role. You've got to take more responsibility for yourself than that. That is a brilliant, brilliant point in sort of moving from that extrinsic to intrinsic motivators. Um, it, it, oh, it's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And because, you know, we can see it so often uh, and and have experienced our own versions of of those clients who are just sort of moving paper around and just doing their jobs and you know looking to to turn the computer off at the end of the day and go home. Um, yeah, we've experienced you know those kind of meetings. I think every single one of us listening to what you just said, brilliant, mm. Alison. Because. <laughs> <laughs> Because, yeah, one of the, the, the things, and, and um, you know, we, we will need to, to wind up, but flagging that, you know, I do really want to talk to you uh, some more, particularly around burnout uh, in, in a little while. But you said that, you know, when we were talking just about little resilience, um, you know, it's part of the, the human condition. There are, there's things that happen that test us. Um, that, you know, we all feel shouldn't test us and, and you know, they're, they're the constant state, no matter what, what, what you do, no matter what you do um, uh, in, in life, you know, being a diplomat or, or otherwise. But it's part of the human experience. And, and this goes to one of the key points that I keep on saying in my communications with my readers is that diplomats are humans too. And which can sound quite trite, but there is, it's, it's quite deliberate that I say that because there are times where we feel that our skills, our experience uh, and where we are can put us, you know, uh, 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 you know at a distance from other professions. Mm. Um, for, for, for better or worse. Um, and sometimes others put us there and sometimes we put ourselves there. Um, but we can forget that we are subject to the same human condition as everybody else. Mm. Um, and 
denying that is probably the surest, most expeditious way of disconnecting with yourself where you try to live up to an ideal that is so unsustainable uh, or, or so, I want to say fake, but not, not necessarily fake, but unattainable. That's the word. Mm. Um, that, you know, if we fall and going right back to the beginning of the conversation, you know, talking about the people who enter diplomacy, being like the people who enter the legal profession or any other um, uh, uh, best and brightest kind of profession, that diplomats can feel that, you know, in that strive for perfection and never putting a foot wrong, um, that when we um, strive for something and we fall short, we can think it's the end of the world. Mm. Um, mm. But rather than taking, you know, reframing it, as you say, uh, and, uh, and thinking about it as the opportunity to learn something about ourselves. The reviews mm. from the people who really don't care about your presentation and about the work that you're doing might not ever change. But using your example, which is brilliant, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, is, you know, we can reframe how we do it. We can try something else, but we can't be scared to try. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is where the work of Carol Dweck has been so game changing yeah. The, all the work around growth mindset and understanding yes. that just because we don't necessarily know how to do something yet doesn't is not a definition of ourselves. And I think the the separating the work I do or the the results I achieve from who I am uh, are really important distinctions to make. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it comes back down to self-efficacy. The more that we approach the challenges that we're faced with, with that learner mindset, growth mindset, I don't know how to do that yet, or I didn't succeed at that yet. It just totally transforms the way that we think about it rather than saying, oh, that didn't work. I'm a failure. Right. I didn't, I didn't get forward. And, and I think there's a whole generation of us, actually more than one generation that are kind of recovering fixed mindsets because at the end of the day, we were always reinforced in that way. You did well on that test. That means you're smart, mm -hmm. right? So right. we were, we were reinforced in that way our whole lives. And then there was a self-esteem movement that told everyone they were brilliant no matter what they did. And that's not right either, right? So at the end of the day, it's it's about building that self-efficacy and understanding that it's not about whether you got it right or wrong. It's much more about, well, what did you learn from that? How might you take that forward? And Thomas Edison's quote is one of my absolute favourites. Yes. Like, I didn't fail. I just found 10,000 ways that didn't work. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. You know, when you think <laughs> about approaching any challenge, like, wow, I'm that much closer because I found these 10,000 ways that don't work. Uh, and if we approached everything with that kind of learner mindset, we're not as attached to the outcome in terms of defining our own self-worth. Um, it would just make a transformational difference to all of these things. Oh, this is, you're proving time and time and time again, Alison, why it is such a pleasure to speak to you.
um, it really is, um, you know, that that whole growth mindset. I think is is absolutely key. Uh, you know, potentially, you know, even a, a, a bit of an entrepreneurial mindset, um, uh, and where absolutely where where trying something where the where the 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 effort is what's noticed not necessarily the outcome um yes but uh yes i think this is something for another uh another time because this you know i do as i flagged in the post um uh want to talk more about burnout with you um yes and uh and and because that i think is um something that is is really prevalent um, uh, from uh, within diplomacy with mid-career diplomats um, and uh, who who sort of might feel that they're at that juncture in their career um, where they go you know if if the next 20 years is going to be like the last 20 years what the hell why why am I doing this you know is it worth it is it worth it but Alison thank you Thank you so much for your wisdom and your insight and really like your just approachability with this enormous topic. (laughs) You're welcome. It's always a pleasure chatting to you, Phil. I really enjoyed it. And I I love learning more about what what diplomats are are up to. I think it's a good good case study for the rest of us. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, And, you know... The, 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 I think that the distinction of diplomats and mere mortals, I think, you know, humans uh, is... Uh, <laughs> mere humans. Yeah, mere, right. mere humans, I think, is, is, uh, uh, is, is you know, the, the commonality there. So, Alison yes. Earl, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Thank you so much for joining us on the Lonely Diplomat podcast. Thank you for having me anytime. Wasn't that an amazing, amazing chat? I don't know if you noticed, but... A couple of times when I was responding to Alison, um, I found myself almost, well, not almost, pretty much at a loss for words because I was processing what she was saying and, and it was blowing my mind in, in on so many occasions. So I apologise uh, if I kind of, you know, uh, if, if, if my babbling questions left you yelling at the screen and just like, ask this question, please feel free to email me at admin at thelonelydiplomat.com or leave a comment uh, all through social media. So on LinkedIn, what's um, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. I'm, I'm still processing it. I'm still getting over having my mind blown so many times. But there's a couple of points that I wanted to um, to to leave with you as I wind up this episode. Something that Alison said, I think, is still ringing in my ears. Not I think, it is still ringing in my ears, and I wonder if it's still ringing in yours. And that is, busyness has become the new currency of value. Now, readers of my blog will know that I've written a post on busyness and what I think busyness is. And essentially, calling it like it is, it's numbing because in our environment, we feel that we ought to be busy. And if we're not busy, if we're not 
busy setting the world alight and doing amazing things, we fear that our position is on the chopping block or that we won't get promoted, we won't get another posting and we won't be noticed for the next opportunity. So sometimes, and this is where the numbing comes in, sometimes we can be our own worst enemy. Alison calls this self-sabotage, um, and I can't agree more because in our rush to prove our value, we get in our own way. So I invite you, as I wrap up this episode, to sit and think about how you respond to stress in your workplace. Also, what are the areas that test your little resilience? Are there things, I wish I had a better word there, are there things in your regular workday that you can, with a little bit of attention, solve? And in my blog post, um, The Lonely Diplomat on Resilience Part 2, I call that getting the pebble out of your shoe because we, yep, with a pebble in our shoe, we can still walk. And that's our little uh, resilience tester. The pebble in our shoe means that we can still walk. But if we ignore it for long enough, that pebble can create a terrible, nasty sore that can actually really prevent us from walking anymore. But for some reason, some of us, myself included, feel like we can just keep on walking with the pebble in our shoe. But for a small amount of time, taking the shoe off, shaking it out, putting the shoe back on, we can then walk more comfortably. But sometimes some of us will go, you know what, it's just a pebble. I can keep walking on it. My leg's not broken. That's something to complain about. But my, my, the pebble in my shoe is fine. I can keep on going. You can keep on going until you can't. You've got to get rid of the pebble in your shoe. So on that note, I invite you to go over and read that blog post. I want to say thank you, an enormous thank you to Alison Earl once again. We will be hearing from Alison in the future. But for now, it does sound like you're you're leaving, you're preparing to go. Um, and I want to say thank you so much for being with us today on this podcast. Until next time, be awesomely, humanly, because the world needs more. sounds of freeware in the public domain. Thanks for listening.